The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight with the big story, which is President Joe Biden just making his remarks, concluding his remarks within the last half hour and pledging to have 200 million vaccines distributed in the United States and access to these vaccines over the next six months. A massive development. It comes amid a local issues throughout the country from California to Pennsylvania, where where local state lawmakers are saying that there are not enough vaccines and that the distribution models to those vaccines have not been moving quickly enough. I want to bring into this conversation Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, as well as Roger Fisk. He is a Democratic strategist, a longtime President Obama aide, and a principal of New Day Strategy. Roger, let's begin with you. I mean, we just heard from President Biden uh, talking about this in a very somber, stoic tone, but I'm struck by just how crucial the next two months are going to be because people's patience is is waning if it hasn't already been thrown out the window. The economy is hurting. People are losing their jobs. There's a frustration, uh, and it's palpable. How important is it that this execution for the Democratic Party goes flawless? First off, Kevin, thanks so much for having me, and it's great to be here with Rick. You know, it was, it was a very interesting blend or juxtaposition in one sense, I can feel the kind of civic part of me welcoming kind of the straight talk and things like that, you know, being very straightforward about the fact that it's going to be difficult. And in other sense, politically, I'm looking at this going like, oh, my God, you know, after 13 months of, of relative happy talk and wishful thinking pumping through people's veins, you can you can see how the backlash to just being straight with people and saying how difficult this is going to be. You use the word somber. And I know you, you, you meant that in a particular way. I think the, the political kind of component of that is more almost um, kind of dark, almost sounding, almost. I would agree. Realistic. He was being realistic with people, but it had kind of a, a very, uh, a very heavy kind of component to it. And I think there will be some, some backlash to it. I think, you know, we, we said this um, about six months ago. I remember because there was the press conference in the Rose Garden in March of last year where all the box stores were going to have testing sites and all these other things. Had we actually gone through with a lot of those things, my thinking was that a robust testing process would be then the natural infrastructure that then one just pumps a vaccine out through. You know, they would just see all those box stores, all those parking lots, all, those, all these other places. But unfortunately, like, that didn't happen. So what you're going to end up with is, you know, the logistical kind of demands um, of, of finding a, a, a structure to actually get this out into people's arms and then people coming off 12 and 13 months of fatigue um, and, and hitting the harsh reality of this. But then Biden said, you know, all along it's going to be difficult. And, and here we are. You can feel that difficulty kind of coming into very stark focus. 
You know, and I think that's a great point. And and to to go into this even more, just the optics of this, uh, President Biden just wrapping his remarks within the last 20 minutes, again, get, providing Americans an update uh, for the vaccination front. He was speaking at the National Institute of Health. This is, of course, the dominant uh, in the dominant agency uh, for uh, the vaccination front. It was founded back in, in the 1880s and is really the face, so to speak, of, of America's uh, scientific community. Uh, and the headlines flying fast off of this, just to bring everybody up to speed, President Biden saying that uh, they are going to uh, be able to secure three hundred an additional 100 million doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. The U.S. government has purchased an additional 100 million doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, But he's also saying that the United States is on track to have enough COVID-19 vaccines for 300 million Americans by the end of July. Again, the main headline, the lead, to use some journalism jargon, 300 million Americans will be able to get vaccinated by the end of July. This according to what President Joe Biden just said in his remarks. Rick Davis, I mean, there was some criticism. You and I have talked about this from Republicans who said that the 100 million number in his first 100 days was a lowball estimate, that that was actually beneath what the last administration had said they were going to be able to provide. So to, to triple that estimate, to extend it towards the end of July, quite significant. What's the politics of this implications? Well, you know, it's setting expectations. I mean, you know, you're right. When uh, Joe Biden came out and said, hey, we're going to do 100 million in, uh, in, in 100 days, uh, it was a cute kind of refrain, very <laughs> political. But, yeah. uh, but it was meaningless, right? Because when you then peeled back the onion, it was what we were already doing, if not actually a little less. And so, so this is, I think, a new day to try and calibrate expectations. And I do agree with... Um, what you and Roger have said that it was a bit of more somber tone than the mm. uh, you know first two weeks of his administration where he got off talking about how you know we're going to tackle this problem and we're going to do so much better job and we're going to inoculate 100 million people uh, and and I thought what was interesting is he said that these vaccines would be available he didn't say he was actually going to get them in the arms of of 300 million people by July but they'd be available by July if not a little sooner. So, so the administration still has this task. And then he followed that up with a laundry list of things that they're going to start doing. You know, I talked to Roger Goodell after the Super Bowl about opening up 30 football stadiums. He has vac- you know, mass vaccination sites opening up in all over the country. This is all brand new. We've been dealing with the coronavirus, you know, for, for 14 months. We now have uh, had a vaccine available to us, uh, you know, since November. And we're just now opening up these centers. So, I mean... He's not going to get credit, but he will be graded if he can't get 300 million people vaccinated by July. That's a really smart, tweetable analysis. He's not going to get credit, but he will be graded. The Israelis, I still say this, the Israelis have really been the country that have done I mean, by all accounts, they've they've vaccinated the, the highest percentage of, of their population more so than any country. And, and, and coming up, we're going to have much more reaction to all of this and, and analysis. Of course, I'll give you the latest reporting on the impeachment front, the saga that continues now in the final days of the second impeachment trial. Uh, but 
Look, I mean, if Ronald Reagan was the one that said that all politics begins at the kitchen table, I think we've entered into an era that all politics enters into your doctor's office and whether or not your loved ones and your parents are able to get not just the first vaccine, but the second shot in the arm as well. Every single American, every person listening right now, I get it. I get it. You're listening and you're thinking of someone, maybe it's your adult uh, parents who are, are, are older, above 65, and you're thinking, when can mom and dad get a vaccine? When can your loved one who has uh, or your grandparents get a vaccine? We just heard it here. He's going to be graded on how that works. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, an exclusive conversation with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, the Democrat from New York. You do not want to miss this interview. I'm telling you, she is very outspoken on a host of different issues. She's one of those lawmakers who actually answers your questions and, uh, you know, her staff might not like it all the time, but uh, but it, it makes for a good uh, a good a good transparent, I guess, is the word for it. Authentic type of interview. Joining me now to authentic analysts, Rick Davis and Roger Fisk. Roger, you would agree that Senator or Senator Maloney, oh, I don't want to get I don't want to get her staff in trouble. Congresswoman Maloney is is one of the most. Uh, how would we say this? Uh, uh, she says whatever is on her mind. Absolutely. And if I have it, I mean, the genesis of her career is quite unique if I'm thinking of the right individual. Well, you know, you know, there we uh, there we go. And someone said candid. One of our producers in the chat said forthright, unfiltered, unabashed. They're, they're going through all of the really synonyms that I could be using because I guess I'm a little tongue tied <laughs> the past couple of days. All right. Let's head back up to Capitol Hill, where, of course, the impeachment trial continued. I've got sounds on this from Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York. House impeachment managers presented more evidence today in the second impeachment trial of former President Trump. Yesterday, the manager showed never before seen video and audio from the Capitol siege on January 6th, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it might be an uphill battle, but that he believes some Republicans could change their votes. Let's play the sound on that. I had never seen myself in that tape that they showed. I didn't know they had it till I saw it. Um, and so I'm hopeful it will change minds. It's hard to look at that and not see the gravity of what happened. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also weighing in, and she says that she's proud of the work that the Democratic impeachment managers are doing to present the evidence. Here's the sound on that. Let's let the, uh, the presentation work its way out. American people, we're in a court of uh, the Senate right now. We're also in the court of public opinion. We're in the court of our families who will make judgments about us, and we're a court of history. 
So the Democrats are saying that the Republicans are doing everything that they need to do. But Rick Davis, it, uh, again, I, I was checking in with some Republican staffers today and, and looking at the tape, uh, prepping for the show. The, the, the Republicans, I mean, no one's really changing their mind, Rick. There's not going to be the 17 or so Republicans that would be needed to convict. Still little to no change in the outcome of, uh, of this trial. Yeah, Senator uh, uh, Bill Cassidy uh, flipped uh, and voted for going forward with impeachment. He was the only movement in the early stages of the trial. I don't think uh, anybody has uh, really shown a—there's been some compelling evidence. Uh, and if I would say if there was a secret vote, you'd probably have close to the entire chamber voting for impeachment based on the case that the Democrats have presented. Uh, and today was a key one because they connected— the riots and the mayhem that occurred in the Capitol with what Donald Trump was actually saying, you know, from the White House. So so that close connection with cause and effect, which hadn't been taking place yet in the trial, uh, came to fruition today. And and look, I mean, it's 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 all in the eye of the beholder. You can believe that Donald Trump inspired these people to commit sedition or you can believe that he didn't and he was just being outspoken in his views. And and sadly, that will likely fall on a party line vote. I wonder, uh, before we go to Roger, I wonder if January 6th will once again be discussed uh, frequently a couple of years from now when we're talking about whether former VP Pence wants to run for president or whether, you know, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo wants to run for president. It's Ted Cruz. Romney. I mean, will we be continuing to talk about January 6th and and if or or will it be yesterday's news? Well, if my sources are correct, and I believe they are, uh, they are in active conversations in Mar-a-Lago with the Trump family and some of their advisors to actually start targeting Republicans who have uh, been outspoken against Trump's activities around the January 6th date. And so I think what you're going to see immediately is an effort to try and primary Republicans uh, like Lynn Cheney, who voted for impeachment in the House, and others. It's part of the threat matrix that he used for the last four years. You know, Donald Trump's a bully, and he uses that process to try and get what he wants. And in this case, if he does not get convicted, he will be actively trying to unseat Republicans who uh, who defied him. Rick Davis, the reporter, dropping some sources, some 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 journalistic <laughs> jargon. My model, Kevin. I you know, maybe some maybe some of Stone Court Capitals Rick Davis can rub off on Kev. How do we like that? The former campaign manager for John McCain becomes a reporter. Wow, I love it. Roger Fisk, uh, I, I mean, do you think that we'll be talking about impeachment uh, in the years to come? Uh, or is this going to be yesterday's news? I, I mean, I, I don't know about impeachment per se. I do think January 6th is going to linger. I think there's many more prosecutions of individuals ahead of us than behind us. Um, so I think that story is going to continue to play out. And as you see these characters plucked you know, from their front lawns in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Florida and all over the place, I mean, we, we, we don't see this here, but those are all major stories in their you know, uh, regional media markets and things like this. So I think this is going to have pretty long legs. And there's a tactic that I think is, has been very interesting, and it's somewhat subtle, but I think it's telegraphing very directly to the senators. I remember specifically one time they were talking about a senator in the mid to early 1800s, 
and then the and then the, the house manager turned and said, and he and he sat right where you're sitting now, mm. Senator Grassley. Which is to say, 150 and 160 years from now, someone's going to be talking about this. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Much more coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by none other than Rick Davis, a Bloomberg Politics contributor, partner at Stone Court Capital, and of course the former campaign manager to John McCain's presidential campaign. I wanted to go back to this conversation and continue it that we were having about uh, former President Trump and, and where the Republican Party goes, just for to put a an end to it. You know, I, I did speak earlier this week with a source close to uh, Donald Trump Jr. And to, it matches your reporting, really, Rick, which is they are fully preparing to primary Republicans um, throughout the uh, throughout in the, in the 2022 races. But I think that where we in the media have have not encompassed the con- closed the conversation on this is that Republicans are very well poised to win back control of the House of Representatives in 2022. At least that's what they think. That's what the donor class thinks. That's what the Republicans think. And so who gets credit for that uh, in, you know, Thanksgiving 2022 uh, after the, the midterms are over? Is, is going to be who has the leg up for the presidential cycle. Can you just explain the significance of that momentum heading into who is able to say that they were the Tom Brady of the, uh, of the midterms? Yeah, uh, I think you're exactly right in your uh, framing of that issue. Uh, it's going to be a grab for power, right? I mean, I think the conditions are ripe for a Republican takeover of the House in 2022. It's a midterm, which typically switches 30 or more seats, plenty plenty uh, to gain the, the majority. I think we only have a nine-vote deficit now. And, and, and I think the guy who seems to be making the most moves right now is the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we, we, we don't forget that Kevin, you know, in the middle of all this impeachment talk, hopped on a plane, flew down to Mar-a-Lago and said to Donald Trump, hey, I need your help in getting Republicans elected. Whatever happens, let's put that on the list of top priorities and evidently had a relatively receptive audience with Trump. So he's going to try to use every tool in his toolkit to to be able to become the next speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, he doesn't have presidential ambitions that we know of, but are going to be a lot of people, as you point out, Kevin, who are going to be standing in line to help out Republicans in primaries and in the general election to take credit for a Republican takeover that is likely to be baked into the equation. I mentioned this to Tom Keene earlier in the week on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, uh, but but Punchbowl News did an interview, and Anna Palmer with Punchbowl News did an interview with uh, Kevin McCarthy earlier this week, and they asked him point blank, you know, why did you... Uh, go down to Mar-a-Lago. Did you think that was the right messaging? And he said he he believes that he can talk to anyone. He's the the top Republican in the House of Representatives. There are many Republicans who are, are in his caucus who support the former president who believe that this impeachment trial is nothing more than political theater. And you know he he essentially said I can talk to whoever I want. Uh, Anna's going to join us tomorrow uh, to talk about her exclusive interview. But uh, to that extent, I mean. There are parts of the country that may be out of the beltway where I am in Washington, D.C. It might be hard for folks to understand, but there are parts of the country and members who represent them who appear on this program that you and I have spoken to 
where the former president remains incredibly popular. And so it would be would it be a mistake, Rick Davis, to ignore uh, the the political apparatus and fundraising prowess that the former president has, especially if you're the Republican Party? Yeah. And I think that uh, timing is everything. Right. Would you have done that? in the middle of an impeachment uh, inquiry of that said president, or would you have waited till after the fact? You, we know that they are looking at uh, uh, primarying Republicans. Uh, uh, campaigns are made up of limited resources, money being one of them. If you're gonna spend a lot of money on primarying Republicans, that's money you're not spending running against a Democrat. And so I'm sure part of the conversation is let's use our resources efficiently. It's not a lock that we take over the house. But if everything is moving in our direction, why would we want to try and do a, you know, sort of purge within our own ranks, you know, and give Democrats an opportunity to use their funds more effectively. So I'm sure that's part of the dialogue that he's having with people who are sitting on a lot of cash. Now that's a bunch of donors, but, but Donald Trump has a hundred million dollars in a pack. And uh, right now that's the biggest amount of cash that could be used in the midterm elections for a Republican win. I mean, whatever you think of, of President Donald Trump, I mean, the the reason he was able uh, to to win that Republican primary in 2016 was he captured the imagination of the Republican base. Um, and whether or not you agree with how is indifferent. He did it. And I think one of the questions that I have as a reporter at the start of this cycle is even if a Trump or uh, the former president does decide to run again, do they decide to relitigate the the 2020 race and the and the impeachments or do they try to capture the imagination of the republican party for the future i'm going to be interested because if if you subscribe to the notion that elections are about the future uh, you know will people just be tired of the of the political drama in the same way that democrats attacked hillary clinton when she ran for president in and and lost the primary uh at, back in 2008 and when trump beat her in in 2016 so that that idea of baggage that was just pummeled into the Clinton campaign back in 2016, will that come back to haunt the Trump movement? I don't know. I think energy policy is really where one of the areas that I'll be watching on, uh, especially as as the Biden administration continues their energy policy with the Keystone Pipeline, and that could be a, an interesting uh, dynamic to watch for. I do want to switch quickly and uh, before we bring in. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, to geopolitics. Because yesterday, last evening, President Biden spoke for the first time with uh, President Xi Jinping of China. And, uh, and, and it was a remarkable conversation in the sense that, they, uh, that the readout from the White House said that they talked about a host of different issues, including human rights abuses. My colleague Jonathan Farrow pointed out earlier today that he couldn't really notice much of key differences on policy, on national security policy between the previous administration and the current one. Uh, that meshes with my reporting when I talk to national security policymakers on both sides of the aisle but no doubt a different tone. The tariffs are still in place, for example, and there doesn't appear to be a sign that the tariffs will be lifted between against China um, as the U.S. continues to negotiate. Coming up next, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Uh, this weekend, folks, is the third anniversary of the Parkland uh, shooting massacre uh, that happened at the, in, in Florida, uh, in which we all remember Parkland and, and what happened. I, I was thinking about this story that I read uh, when did it come out in, in June of 2018. I, I read it again for the show prep today in runner's world. Uh, and the headline is cross country coach, Scott Beagle died a hero in the Parkland shooting. Uh, the, the cross country coach pe- lost his life on February 14th, uh, Valentine's day. Imagine that. And during the Parkland shooting and, and, Really now at that school, there are runners who are running in his memory. My next guest is Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. She just this week in, introduced uh, a series of, of gun control measures, five to be to be in uh, in fact. And she did it after a meeting with some of the Parkland parents, um, including Fred Gutenberg, who has dedicated much of his time now to advocating for stricter gun control measures for the past three years after he lost his child in that tragedy. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. Uh, I guess thank just you. briefly describe for us what these five measures would do. One of the one the measures that I, I most, uh, I don't think people are familiar with, is enhancing technology on firearms so that you would not be able to pull the trigger on a weapon unless you are a registered gun owner. It's utilizing technology and artificial intelligence in a way that I don't think many people are familiar with. Well, it's a smart gun technology. It's been out there for a long time, but every time they try to manufacture or move forward, uh, the gun lobby comes in and figures out how to close them down. The technology exists that a handgun would only respond to the owner's hand. So all of these times that guns are stolen and used or children pick up their parents' guns and use them, uh, this has happened in mass shootings. It's happened in uh, tragedies at home. The technology exists, and this would have uh, grants to support it and, and to move forward with this technology and have it come into effect. Another one that is just common sense is gun traffickers are never arrested because it's not even treated as a felony to traffic in illegal guns and sell them to gangs and whoever else who's uh, some type of criminal. It's just outrageous. Law enforcement has been asking for years to have that moved up to a a felony. Uh, Not included in my package, but what we have to pass is uh, a ban on assault weapons. It passed once before. uh, The sun set it after 10 years, but it worked. It it took uh, violence off the streets. So that, uh, and again, limiting the gun magazine capacity. Uh, because if you allow them to shoot 100 people in a minute, then uh, I certainly you shouldn't be doing that, and right. we could cut back on that. I want to... I, I yeah. want to. I just want to stick with this because you mentioned that that is not a part of your package, and I think it's important to note that this is not uh, a gun ban package that you have introduced. And I just want to be clear because this issue, I think, oftentimes uh, gets you know politicized, and, and we don't focus specifically on the policy on the issue of making gun trafficking a felony. That is something that law enforcement officials have been pushing for for quite some time. And then on straw purchasing, and what that means, folks, is that if you were to purchase a, a, a firearm 
for another person who is ineligible. The parallel that I draw when I cover this issue is if someone above the age of 21 purchases alcohol for someone under the age of 21, they would be held accountable. So the same way if someone were to purchase a weapon and put that into the hands of someone who is not eligible for to, to own a weapon, that that would also be a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor. How important is that, Congresswoman? That's, that's extremely important. Uh, people would not be buying guns for other people if there were punishment for it. So make it a felony. There's so many cases where people have purchased or straw purchased for a violent criminal or an unstable person that has ended up uh, killing many, many people. Uh, another one that I particularly like is the Firearms uh, Risk uh, Protection Act, which requires the buying of liability insurance. When you buy a gun, when you buy a car, you have to buy liability insurance. It's really promoted a lot of the research that's led to safer cars. The same thing would happen with firearms. Those that are uh, use child locks or lock up their guns, uh, their, their insurance would be less than those that are more reckless. So there are many things that we can do to um, really close up uh, the access of criminals and unstable people to guns. And I, I think that uh, every town and so many other people have pointed out that our country stands alone in mass shootings. Other countries don't have it because when they have it, they then crack down on access to guns by unstable and, and criminals. Uh, we, we have uh, already, it's only February, uh, where it's not even Valentine's Day yet, and we've already seen more than 4,000 gun violence deaths in, in, our, in our country alone. Other countries don't experience that. Believe me, if guns made us safer, we'd be the safest country on earth. I was looking at the Washingtonian magazine, and they've got a, the, in their real estate section, and, and the headline is, could the NRA actually leave its Virginia headquarters? They're out in Fairfax, Virginia. And, and there's uh, reports that they're actually looking to move to Dallas, Texas. Of course, the, the latest headlines over the past couple of weeks is that the NRA has declared bankruptcy. Uh, look, uh, Congresswoman Maloney, you and I have talked for years uh, about a host of different issues. Let's get to the let's cut to the chase here and talk about the politics and the reality. If you want to get traction on this, you're going to need 10 votes in the Senate. You've got control of the House. I get that. But over in the Senate, it's a different political landscape. And you've got Republicans who really are uneasy about this. Are you confident that you can get Republicans on board, the 10 Republicans on board that you would need in order to get this through the Senate well, we have a, a pro-gun safety president now, and that's important. He's been active in gun safety measures his entire uh, career. And one thing's for sure, you're not going to pass it if you don't try. And you have to work on what you believe is important and necessary. If other countries have passed uh, gun safety laws that have made their country safer, why can't we? It, it, the public uh, approves of these bills by 90 percent. So... We should uh, – so there's so many things that we don't know the answer to. We know that with background checks, with uh, really liability insurance, with uh, curtailing the activity of the, the trafficking guns and so many other things, that we can cut down on gun violence in our country. All we need is a political will to do so. So I'm certainly trying to make these yeah. bills become a reality. We actually had a gun show loophole bill similar to the one you've just presented as part of your package of bills uh, mm -hmm. back in 2000. And a Republican president 
And, uh, and, and we had enough votes to get it passed with Republican support. Um, ultimately, leadership pulled the bill that we put it on <laughs> so that the NRA could have their way. But the reality is, I think these are measures that have time uh, to uh, find Republican votes. And I think the kudos to you for, for getting them on the docket so that we can get some action on them. Well, thank you. I'm certainly going to try. Congresswoman Maloney, just quickly, in the, in the last 30 seconds I have with you, uh, it, it, for economic stimulus, when do you expect that's going to be signed into law? Well, we are marking up on Friday the stimulus for cities and states, which is uh, an important one, over $350 billion. Uh, this week we are moving bills out of committee to go to the floor. Uh, hopefully next week or the week after we'll get them through the House. Then it goes to the Senate, as you know, and it will go through the same process. Uh, we are hoping to pass this uh, in March. The the president's 1.9 trillion economic relief, uh, COVID relief package. Uh, our our states and our cities have borne the brunt. There was not a federal response. Uh, if they don't get aid, they'll be laying off their teachers, firefighters, and other first responders during the corona pandemic, uh, causing more challenges to our economy and to the recovery and to really the, the quality of life for, of people around uh, this country. Uh, we are also included in the package as emergency leave uh, for federal and postal workers and and really uh, private sector workers who, because of COVID, uh, their families have been so disrupted and they need some support uh, for, for uh, medical leave to be with their families and their sick ones. And, of course, there's a, a large yeah. section of yeah. funding for transparency and accountability mm-hmm. on where Chairwoman, the going. Yeah. Yes. Chairwoman Maloney, I know, I know you've been so generous with your time, and unfortunately I have to let you go. But please come back on and talk with us about that important work. But I wanted to make sure that we had that discussion about your uh, legislation that you introduced. That's Chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee, Carolyn Maloney. Very appreciative of her time. This month uh, is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in U.S. black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years behind bars. It was a key event in ending South Africa's brutal apartheid system of racial oppression. Tens of thousands of supporters cheered on Mandela as he walked out of the prison gates that day. After his release from prison, Mandela would be elected president of the African National Congress. He'd continue to lobby for the complete dissolution of apartheid. So later on in 1994, the anti-apartheid activist, lawyer, and former political prisoner was elected president of South Africa, ruling until 1999. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for us tomorrow. Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania, as well as Anna Palmer from Punchbowl News. I'm Kevin Cirilli, as well as my thanks to Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.